0: This is Peter Kafka. I am here with Alex Gibney, one of my favorite documentary filmmakers, one of my favorite people to interview. This is, I think, the second time I've talked to you at South by, the second podcast with you. We're here today because you've got a new HBO documentary, which is great. It's called The Inventor Out for Blood in Silicon Valley. It's the story of Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. You should go see it. We should just stream it or watch it on TV at your house. Uh, Welcome, Alex. Thanks, Peter. We were talking before we started taping and you said you have to do multiple projects at once because sometimes a project gets stopped because something breaks, and that happened here with this documentary. What, what, what was the problem for you making this documentary? This seems almost like a layup. I know you work very hard, but it seems like this is something that you could just sink your teeth in right into immediately. It's a fraud. It's um, the Wall Street Journal, John Carrier, uh, did amazing reporting, sort of laid it all out. It just seems like just red meat for you.
1: Yeah, but before the book came out, Um, It wasn't really that way. He had done some pieces in the journal, and then for the film, nobody was willing to talk, and they weren't willing to talk because they were all afraid of being sued by David Boyce, the famous attorney at Boyce Schiller, who famously represented Harvey Weinstein and also Hank Greenberg at AIG and and others, and also represented Al Gore. Right, there a was a, a point
0: where David Boies was considered a white knight among like, That's right. people like you and me, he represented Al Gore, he, he helped break up Microsoft, he didn't break up Microsoft, but represented the DOJ against R- Microsoft.
1: Ruthlessly skewered Bill Gates in a famous deposition, yeah. And in this case, he was
0: representing Theranos, he was also an investor, and th- was getting paid in, in Theranos shares, and, and that put the fear of God into the people you wanted to talk to.
1: That's right, because um, he had threatened people and indeed cost people like Tyler Schultz um, The grandson of George Schultz, who was on the board of Theranos, uh, it cost Tyler's family $500,000 in legal fees. And so everybody wanted to keep their heads down because they were afraid that David Boyce was going to come after them. So it was very hard to get people initially to talk. Um, on the record.
0: So let's let's back up. I mean, I don't think there's anyone listening to this podcast who isn't familiar broadly with Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes and the frog there. Um, but just to put it in context, she said, "I can do this amazing thing where a couple of drops of blood, I can do all these really amazing, uh, they call them blood panels, right? I can I can diagnose 200 different things amazingly that people it normally takes an enormous amount of work and time and money to do. I can do it quickly." I can, for some reason, put one of these in every household. Um, She's on every magazine cover. She's worth nine billion dollars. The company's worth nine billion dollars, and then it all goes away. At what point do you see that and go, "This is a story I'm going to write"?
1: Well, you know, I was approached about this by two people who had been conned by her: Graydon Carter, um, former editor of Vanity Fair magazine, and Richard Plepler, who, until recently, you know, ran HBO. and they had become so convinced that her story was a magnificent new chapter in Silicon Valley. The young female entrepreneur drops out and, 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 and does extraordinary things they for the world. They pitched it to you. Well, they pitched it to me once. They're, they had been so enamored of her that they thought of doing kind of the promo story. And then they saw it go south with mm-hmm. John Carreyrou. and so they, so they thought, hmm let's maybe alex would be interested in this story and uh, indeed i was
0: that's so. such a great bit of context because you spend a lot of time with john Rue on, on the documentary he's 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 on camera as he should be but you also spend a lot of time with two other journalists who were conned by the, by her Ken Aletta uh, esteemed new yorker writer and and roger parloff from from the fortune who from fortune magazine who it's i, I don't want to spoil it but he's this through line through the documentary that's right and he's he's to this
1: day, just incredibly angry at, at her and it seems to be at
0: himself that he was Indeed.
1: haunted by, by his own role, uh and, and, and his failure to see through her.
0: And and to be clear, both both uh Aleta and, and Parloff explained that you know we we tried to assess some of these claims. There were not We're not uh, scientists. We couldn't... And also all this stuff was shrouded literally in a a box. You couldn't see it. But we didn't just take it on blind faith. We did talk to her. Aletta's often
1: playing you tapes of him talking
0: to her, trying to elicit more information. In which she
1: she literally lies to him on tape.
0: Yeah. Is there a broader takeaway, you think, about the role that the press and other enablers have in, in, in making a con like this work?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's too easy to say that it's the press's fault, But you can see as part of the story the kind of poignant and important tale of how vital it is that journalists get it right and how we're all suckers for a story that we want to hear. Yeah. And the story that Elizabeth was telling was a story that we all wanted to hear. We can make healthcare better. We can make it more transparent. We can make it cheaper. We can make it less invasive. And by the way, this is a company that is headed by a young woman in male-dominated Silicon Valley who's not only a CEO, but is an entrepreneur and an inventor.
0: You, you want that story to be true. And, and I think about this a lot, both as someone who, who makes content and puts on conferences and does podcasts. I'm always trying to overcorrect for the fact that I talk to almost exclusively white guys. Right, um, We're always trying to get people who aren't white guys on camera, on a podcast. Um, she, she was all over magazine cover, she sort of filled that role. Um, Do you think she was aware of sort of how she was filling that niche? Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And and I think even in Defeat, she was very much aware of playing that role because when my producer, Jesse Dieter, interviewed her off the record, you know, early on, we were trying to persuade her to come on board. You know, she said that she was the victim and that uh, the only reason that she went down was because she was a woman and that that people came after her and lots of men in Silicon Valley could make mistake after mistake after mistake and they would be forgiven and they would come back. But if you're a woman, you only get one chance.
0: How true do you think that argument is? I,
1: You know, I don't buy it in this case. I, it, 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 Again, it's a very, uh, I think the idea of the argument is right and it's an argument I want to believe in in the sense that I do think that we um, were tougher on, on women and, and we often give men a pass on things that, that we shouldn't. Um, you know, like the idea of being tough. And for a woman, you know, as an executive, that might be shrill, right? right? But in this case, Elizabeth really crossed an ethical line that should not have been crossed, and that was she had a blood testing technology that wasn't really working very well. But she needed money, she needed to go forward, she needed the support of Walgreens, so she went live and started allowing... The Theranos devices to be used on real patients. Now you're talking about life and death because you know they were testing for things like hepatitis C right. and syphilis, and 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 also for um, various blood values that caused certain people to go to the emergency room because they were convinced that they were in a in a whole heap of trouble. So, so in this case, if Elizabeth had only been in R&D mode, okay, I accept that argument, but. I don't accept the argument in this case because she was putting real lives at risk.
0: When the, the Carrier stories broke in the journal, I remember there were a bunch of Silicon Valley people who just had an immediate sort of reaction. This is the press trying to tear down an inventor, an entrepreneur, and you guys like negative stories. It was a reflexive reaction from them and then eventually they they stop because it's just outright fraud. That's right. But there has been this ongoing tension between wanting to build up a a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, any entrepreneur really, but but specifically sort of the the tech people. And then eventually they stumble and and there's this narrative that the press delights in that. do you want to write stories? Do you want to make stories about people who are enormously successful, or is, or is, or is sort of a twisted tale like this just inherently more interesting?
1: <laughs> well, I am drawn to tales about abuse of power yeah. and about deception, but you know, over time, you do enough of those stories, and you do really want to do stories about people who are doing good and really do do good. In fact. You know, I'm, I'm out looking for those stories now because I think it's important. You know, we're trying to save the planet. Wouldn't it be great to do stories about people who are really doing good? But, you know, I think that we live in a time where corporations have become so powerful relative to the state and relative to the fourth estate, you know, which is really under assault, that um, they are able to promote fictions in ways that are really dangerous. And so it's, in, and I think in this moment in time, it's important to rudder against those fictions. There, I mean,
0: there is at least, I mean, we're seeing it now with Elizabeth Warren and other folks There we've we switched in some ways from adulating Silicon Valley to saying, all these guys are, are allied against us, or at least there's a class of people who are making that argument. Do you think that she would have been as successful doing her her fraud? in 2019 as she was five years ago? No,
1: I think she wrote a wave. I think your point is, is, is well taken. I mean, look, now we have a uh, fraudster in chief as president of the United States. So I think we're, we're all a little bit more sensitive to the idea of people who rapaciously tell lies. Or numb to it. Or numb to it, maybe. But I, I think that you know, we don't accept it on faith that when a, a, a company tells you that um, they do good, that we don't necessarily believe them.
0: One of the other distinctions that the, the Silicon Valley folks made in sort of the first year or so after after she'd been debunked was this she wasn't really Silicon Valley. She dressed like Steve Jobs and she was photographed. I'm gonna ask you about that in a second. But 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 if you look at who invested in her. Right, it's not Silicon Valley. It's there were no sort of name brand VCs. She didn't have any of the standard biotech VCs. It was rich people like Rupert Murdoch, um, and then she had a board full of, of generals and Secretary of State Henry Kissinger. Um, she's not. She's not one of us. Don't blame us.
1: Yeah, I, I accept that to some extent. I mean, it is true that a number of savvy um tech investors did not invest in Elizabeth Holmes. But some she got some early big names like Larry Ellison yeah. to come on board and give her street cred
0: yeah um, and the argument there is that larry uh, someone like larry Ellison will make a very early bet she Sure, on make an early bet and it doesn't
1: matter it's like going to the track and betting on a 50 old sometimes one-shot. you bet on your friends sometimes you bet on your kids yeah. friends and sometimes so you bet what, on what's a million here or a million there yeah. but you know she she was cleverly able to use that over time to persuade other people to come on board but i would say that um the elizabeth holmes story does fit rather neatly Within the context of American capitalism, and that's one of the reasons that you know I, to- I chose to tell the Thomas Edison story as part of the um, the Elizabeth Holmes story. You know, he was the original "fake it till you make it" guy.
0: Yeah, you point this out what, that, that he did do a lot of amazing things, and then he also made up a bunch of stuff.
1: Well, and 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 luckily for him, or luckily for us, you know, you know. When he said he had invented the incandescent light bulb, it really wasn't ready for prime time. It was bullshit, really. And um, but uh, he would fake tests, yeah. you know, to convince people that it was ready. He gave journalists stock in his company, you know to keep them writing good stories, as and in the Elizabeth Holmes case, it was so important to have journalists yeah. write good stories, right? So he was doing all those things, but at the end of the day, he did make it work, and that made him very different from Elizabeth Holmes. And also, and there's this
0: nice uh, symmetry, right? Because she names her machine the Edison.
1: Yeah, well, that's what got us onto that to begin yeah. with. That that's why we started to go down that path. Edison. Why did she call it Edison? So we started to to investigate and 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 learn more about Edison. But interestingly, in terms of the all the parallels with tech, I mean, I think look her ethic fake it till you make it is baked in to silicon valley so there's an aspect of elizabeth holmes that's very much mainstream uh move fast break things you know the disruptor all that stuff and and she imbued herself with a lot of that ethic now some a lot of silicon valley veteran vc firms did not invest her and all that is true rupert murdoch invested in her to the tune of 125 million dollars without ever looking at an audited financial statement, which I find jaw-dropping. But that also tells you something about investing and capitalism and 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 whether or not these things are really rational or based on, on emotion.
0: So she allies herself with Edison and the Edison myth, and then specifically with Steve Jobs. Oh, right? yeah. She says so over and lot- over, mm-hmm. I want this to be like the I don't really understand why you'd want a blood testing machine in your home, but that aside, she does the black turtleneck, which I didn't realize until you point out midway through, Um, you've got this amazing footage of her doing these Apple-style documentaries, and they're created by Errol Morris, who had did a lot of this work for Apple. It is literally no accident they wanted to emulate
1: that. Uh, She had hired a guy named Patrick O'Neill, who had been at Chiat Day and had been very much on the Apple account. And Patrick, kind of masterminded the look of Theranos, yeah. both in terms of outward-facing consumerism, but also in terms of how they were going to design their building, how are they going to design the look, how are they were going to design the way they talked about the company, to invent um, the the shape and feel of it from top to bottom. And that was very Jobsian in its way. I mean, Steve was Jobs was very... Rigorous in terms of how Apple was presented, how it was designed, so forth and so on. He was a great storyteller and salesman. Interesting, though, the one lesson that Elizabeth never learned from Steve Jobs, which she should have, was how much Steve Jobs ultimately, particularly Steve Jobs 2.0, the, the, yeah. the Steve Jobs who invented the iPhone, learned from failure. You know, out of the failure of Next comes the success of Apple 2.0. And also, he surrounded himself at that time with people like John Rubinstein and um, Avi Tevanian, who was an early investor in Theranos before he Mm -hmm. kind of turned against it, and uh, Johnny Ive, people who were willing to tell him no. And she only surrounded herself with yes-men. And when people began to tell her no, she would either marginalize them or fire them.
0: I want to talk to you a little bit more about Steve Jobs and, and the mechanics of how you put this together. We're going to take a quick break, right back back here with alex gibney uh we were just talking about steve jobs which reminds me that the last time i talked to you in this building Mm -hmm. uh you had a steve jobs documentary it's it's quite a a critical cutting look at him um and there are so many parallels between that movie and that story and this one they're very different stories but you're still it's a very critical look at at someone in this case that's a full-on fraudster and you're in the steve jobs movie you're saying This is a man who did amazing things and is deeply flawed and i want to focus on those flaws and then one of the things that i've just really noticed there's how much footage there is of her your steve jobs movie is is full of footage of steve jobs over his life you forget how much he was on camera how much he documented himself why do you think she documented herself so copiously it's almost like she made the documentary for you i know she didn't
1: well she, she made the documentary she wanted me to invest in um, and I used it to a different purpose. But um, I think for her, it was as if she imagined, you know, if only there had been a camera in the garage with Waz and Steve Jobs. So now this is my garage and we're gonna film it from start to finish. And so, you know, she hires Patrick and she hires, Martin Scholler, this great photographer, to, um, to photograph her, and she hires Errol Morris to do the documentary. Right. And right on up to the end, I mean, I think there was a, there was a period where, I, as I understand it, Errol was going to continue on to, to do it and, and kind of pitch that idea to, to Elizabeth until Elizabeth, I think, saw that was not going to go well ultimately. But, um, but, yeah, she wanted to... She was the writer, director, and producer of her own story. And it was very much a created story, a curated story, right down to the makeup and the wardrobe, her black turtlenecks, Mm -hmm. her deep red lipstick, uh, the heavy mascara around her eyes, which never blinked. You know, this was a costume for a drama that she was playing out in real time for people in order to be able to give that emotional valence to the story that, that is so important to get people to sign up.
0: And one of the other parallels with the Jobs movie, and this one is in the Jobs movie, I think the most telling thing is this this deposition. Yes. Where he's getting, he's in trouble for backdating stock options. That's right. And he's he's both super disdainful of the, the lawyers who are deposing him. Um, he's incredibly like, angry that he has to, be, has to be sat down in this room and answer questions. And he's also self-pitying. Um, and, in, and in this movie, you've got this amazing deposition footage as well. How do you think about assembling this sort of stuff when there is so much footage? Going the,
1: to well, there's an interesting thing I want to say about that, which was that HBO, you know, we, and then HBO backing us up, tried very hard to get a lot of the deposition video. And we did succeed in terms of getting it. And we used a tiny bit of it in the film, a deposition with George Shultz, notably, but also just a little bit of Elizabeth and and Sonny Balwani taking a fit or being sworn in. But ultimately, we decided in the the Jobs film, the deposition footage is incredibly revealing of Jobs, as I think he often was. It was the mask revealed in, in a moment. In this case... We decided ultimately not to include that much of the deposition footage because we thought it was more revealing to show how Elizabeth wanted to be presented, to show her movie so that you could see how she wanted to sell her own story.
0: Right, so over and over you're seeing her the way she wanted to present herself, and then you intercut that with someone like a Tyler Schultz saying, no, this is what was
1: actually going that, on. Yeah, the, the, the difference between what Tyler, Tyler had a great distinction. He called it the difference between the carpeted world and the tiled world. The tiled world was the world of the lab where nothing worked, everything was yeah. breaking, and the carpeted world was the executive suite where Elizabeth would hold forth and would convince even Tyler, who knew how badly things were working, working on the tile world but he would come up to the carpeted world and after a 10-minute conversation with Elizabeth he'd be full of of dreams and visions of how this is all going to change the world and then he'd get back down to the tile world. he's like no oh my god it couldn't be further from the truth and his grandfather George Schultz I mean one of the poignant tales in this film is that George Schultz really wouldn't believe his grandson about the nature of the fraud going on inside and by that time Elizabeth had gotten so much into his head I think uh, in, in in some ways, this tale is about the, you know something I dealt with in the film on Scientology, the prison of belief. You know, you, once you've committed, once you've committed, it's very hard to walk out of that that cell, uh, even though the door is open.
0: Yeah, and so you've got this this is footage that she has basically provided for you, not intentionally. The footage you've made of, of interviews with people who directly involved. And then you intersperse it with recreations here and there, right? Sure. Here is a vial falling on the ground. Here is what it looked like when the woman walks out of the office and is and is served with deposition papers that have her temporary address, so it's super creepy. I imagine you do this in many of your movies, but, but this movie specifically since it's about fraud, about recreation. Are you at all nervous about inserting footage that is a recreation or a dramatization?
1: Uh, not really. I mean, I, I think that I- in a way what you're doing is playing with layers of deception and you're creating what I think are stylized moments that effectively serve as kind of recollections. Uh, Or in some cases are stylized moments, which serve to, in a playful way, show what might've been going on inside the machine that you can't really see. Um, and, And I think there's enough distance there. So it's not like we're trying to fool people. We're trying to put them in the psychological or mental frame of mind of, 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 of what that moment might have been about.
0: You've mentioned HBO a few times, We you've mentioned Richard Plepler. You premiered this movie, or there was a big screening and party for this movie, literally the night that Richard Plepler said, I'm, I'm leaving HBO. What will that mean for you going forward, working with HBO or not working with HBO? He was a champion of your work.
1: Uh, hard to say. I mean, you know, I've talked to Casey Blois and, and, uh, and all the regular folks I normally deal with at HBO, and they all say, you know, we're, we're bullish on yeah. telling these stories in the future, so let's keep pushing. So great. I, I, I mourn the passing of Richard. I mean, I think he was a unique individual in terms of his ability to both really invest in understanding the territory that particularly a documentarian was getting into and and to really grapple with the content and also to support and promote, you know, the creators at the channel and, and also to be a kind of skillful impresario, which is important. You know, as much as we're talking about the fraud with Elizabeth Holmes and, and you know, how promotion or over-promoting can take you into a, an area of deception and he lies. He can put on a show. He can put on a show, and a show is good. I mean, you got to get people to pay attention. You know, we're we're all kind of in an ADD world where, you know, we're bombarded 24-7 with Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and the nightly news and uh, and updates on the New York Times every ten minutes, so you have to find a way to call, you know, people out and say it's important to pay attention. Right,
0: yeah, And he was very good at working with people like me and the press in general. Right. Yeah. He, he was he was gracious and, and knew how to sort of give us things that we needed and were useful. Right. Um, there's plenty of people who know how to do that I, i'm just all the all the all and maybe this is why but all the stories that came out immediately after he left said he was special and different um and he was the special juice that sort of made hBO go and the T guys the telco guys that bought this don't get it the AT&T guys if you talked to him said he's really good at what, doing what he did but we're we can, doing something we can, different and, now. And, and also he's not the only person who can talk to talent right it's technically possible right
1: yeah, sure. I mean, you know... Um, you've, and,
0: worked, you've worked with lots of other people.
1: Sure. And and there are other talented executives. I'm just, uh, you know, Richard was particularly talented. And, you you know, at some point along the way, I mean, the way I have a small company, you know, we're doing a bunch of projects, some of which I'm involved in, some of which I'm not. But, I mean, the, one of the things that we try to promote at our company is that we're not doing something for the corporation, the corporation is there to celebrate the talents of a bunch of people. You know, so we're investing in the people. We're not trying to jam-fit the people into some kind of Rigid corporate philosophy.
0: So, you'll certainly, I assume, keep working with HBO sure. if, if they make yeah, deal it. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And like I said, I mean, I know Casey is a very um, creative and, and intelligent guy yeah. who's done a lot of great work. And the the two women, you know, I, I, I mourn the passing too of Sheila Nevins. Uh, she decided, you know, she, re, she retired a number of uh, years ago, a couple of years ago, I guess. But I know Nancy Abraham and Lisa Heller at HBO. They're great, uh, you know, very savvy uh, executives who really know what they're doing. And and honestly too, you know, there's a there's a kind of back office, particularly the back legal office at HBO that has been hugely supported. You did a
0: Scientology document like you referenced. They
1: really got behind us in in ways that were very powerful, and and even on this one, I think you know made sure that we made good law when we went after the um, the depositions, uh, the video depositions in this case, in order to be able to. Make them available. We didn't end up using them in the film for aesthetic and creative reasons, but it was a great uh, service, I think. Yeah,
0: I and and she was still professing her innocence while you were making this movie.
1: Oh, throughout. I mean, professing not only her innocence but the fact that she was a victim.
0: Yeah. I, uh, I, I, we were talking about the Fire Festival documentaries yeah. before we started, and I, I wish you'd seen um, at least one of those. Yeah, you no, I gotta check them out. But I mean, the, one of the striking things about about um, that one and this one—they're not parallel. They're parallel in some ways, but in both cases, right? When you think of a fraudster, you think of someone who takes the money and runs. In her case, she stuck around. She, she was, did. She and was there when it was billion. She's there when it's worth zero. She maintaining her innocence. The fire festival guy is literally on the island as the whole thing is disappearing, insisting that it's all going to work out. It's and you, and you, this is why I wanted to ask you about it. You do spend some time. So obviously you explain how the fraud happened, mm-hmm. but you do try to explain why the fraud happened, why she did this, and debating is this just outright greed or is this something else?
1: Yeah, I don't think it was outright greed. I don't think she's Bernie Madoff. I think she believed in the mission. I also think she believed in the idea of who she was, right? But sometimes that's not the good news. It's actually the bad news. and Because it's a variation of the end justifies the means, right? And I think she was able to...
0: I'm going to help people, so if I have to bend, a cor- if I have to bend something here, yeah. do a workaround here, it's okay. That's right.
1: And I think it also was able, it allowed her to lie more effectively because she believed she was doing it for a good cause. Or she convinced herself that she wasn't lying at all. And, and I got some help. In that front, you know, one of the things I got interested in when I started to make this film was the whole psychology of lying and not only lying to others, but lying to yourself in order to be able to lie more effectively to others. And, you know, there's a through line in the film, uh, the voice of a man named Dan Ariely. Yes. A behavioral economist who's, who's very much in the tradition of these guys, Danny Kahneman and Amos Tversky, who was celebrated by Michael Lewis in his last book. Yes. Um, And he's all about the irrational. He wrote a book called Predictably Irrational uh, in in how we respond in very irrational ways to the market and to uh, the issues of supply and demand and so forth and so on. But he also really digs deep into the idea of deception and self-deception. And one of his most wonderful experiments is something he does with dice, and the experiment goes something like this, where you give somebody a die and you say, look, we're gonna pay you according to how the die comes up. If it comes up six, you get $6, four, $4, whatever. But he puts a little hop in the ball and says, before you roll, just think in your mind, but don't tell me, you know, are you betting that it's gonna, you know, are you betting on the top or the bottom? Right. The six or the one? And roll, okay. So they roll and then people write down their scores and so forth. It's, so self-report. it's self-reporting. And it turns out that the people in pursuit of their own gain are incredibly lucky, meaning they cheat. Yeah. And then they put them on a lie detector to say, well, did you cheat? And they say, no. And of course the lie detector picks up the lie right away. Then they do a second experiment. and This is the really interesting part of it. And in the second experiment, they say, all the money is gonna go to a charity that benefits orphans, right? Mm-hmm. And you'd expect that they would cheat less, but in fact, they cheat more. And when they put them on the lie detector, the lie detector cannot detect the lie. Yeah. Why? Because there's no tension between this notion. On the one hand, uh, I want more money, but I think it's wrong. I'm not harming anyone. I'm not harming anybody. Even more, I'm doing good. Right. So what's the problem?
0: I ask people, have asked people for a while in Silicon Valley, particularly investors. So much money is sloshing around. Even well-intentioned people, you think would be screwing up left and right and burning holes. And not to mention just the cross section of any population, you're going to have fraudsters there. There have not been there have not been that many stories about outright fraud and deception. Right? There's this one fire festival doesn't really count, although it sort of does. I know some VCs who met those guys and said, I don't know how you were deceived. I mean, you could. Figure this out in a second. But as an aside, um, there was a there there's there's a VC who turned out was was absconding with everyone's money. But there are not that many stories coming out of the valley, given all the billions of dollars have gone to big companies and small guys with an idea with a napkin.
1: Why do you think we haven't heard those stories? Well, some of those companies fail early, probably. But I think you know the other thing I would say is. We do hear these stories about lies in Silicon Valley. That's another interesting point that Dan Ariely comes up with. You know, see, he he consulted with Elizabeth Holmes. He's actually in the story, but he also does a lot of consulting. But right,
0: she was she brings him in to sort of boost everyone's, she says, the, the, the morale is not good here. Can you help us?
1: <laughs> it, it's funny that why, why she brings him in. She brings him in because in the wake of Carrie Roo's articles, yeah, m- motivation is in the pits. And she thinks, how can I motivate? <laughs> the, the problem is not that there's right. a bad technology. The problem is- that Can we message our way? <laughs> Out of this. <laughs> These people are insufficiently motivated. They're not trying hard yeah. enough. Yeah. Uh, so she brings them in to motivate the employees. Um, nothing to do with her problems. But um but I think you know he gives talks to Silicon Valley and, and, and does a lot of talking to corporate groups. And a lot of um, you know, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs would always tell him, Look, Silicon Valley is all about technology, and technology doesn't lie. Well, you know, let's think about some of the lying that's going on in Silicon Valley. What about that whole story with Apple and the battery and the phone? Yeah. You know, was that, were they being honest with us up front? No, not really. Um, that was something we just discovered. Um, and, you know, now we're learning about, you know, all the stuff that Facebook and Google were doing with our data. So, you know, it's not fraud, but it's a kind of um, lying that I think tech companies feel they're entitled to do because they're doing good. It seems like you could do
0: nothing but Silicon Valley docs now for, for a while. <laughs> what are you working on well, next? Well,
1: look, I think the Silicon Valley is where a lot of the power is. But I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm exploring some other stuff. I, uh, there's a film I've, uh, I've just done on a completely different topic about a, a conflict between Russia's richest man and Vladimir Putin. As a way of looking at how Russia works.
0: Oh, that seems like an easy, low-stakes thing for you to go exactly. report. Exactly. I can't wait to see that.
1: <laughs> I remember uh, at one point you said you were going to do a, uh, an actual feature film.
0: Yeah. For Amazon. Uh, Is that still a, going?
1: There's a couple of things. I mean, I've, I've of course, I've done some dramas. I, I did this series called The Looming Tower mm-hmm. with Larry, Larry Wright, and I directed. It was on Hulu, it. right? It was on Hulu, and then um, I did an episode of Billions, which was really kind of fun. Which yeah. one was that? It was the se- season two, I believe, and it was the it was the one about the high stakes poker game. Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was great. Um, I'm going to go back and rewatch it. Yeah, and so um, there are a couple of features that I'm interested in doing and also some other um, dramatic series that uh, we're developing that, that I think could be good. It's fun to inhabit that world. I, I'm, not, I'm not one who's like, oh, now I can jump to drama and I won't have to do documentaries and I love doing documentaries, but, but there's, there are things sometimes you can do in drama that you can't do in docs and vice versa.
0: I will watch anything you make, and especially, I love Billions. I'm going to go back and rewatch that episode. Alex, thanks
1: for your time. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks again to Alex Gibney for chatting with me. Um, I like talking to Alex Gibney. It's one of the perks of this job. I get to talk to cool people like Alex. Uh, also cool is Kristen Cabrera, who came in and recorded that for us at South by in a kind of difficult room to record in. So thank you, Kristen. You rock. And also thanks to Joel Robbie who edited that show to make it sound even better. Thanks to you guys for listening. We love that you listen. Please tell someone else about the show. Thank you. Thanks to our sponsors. Thanks to Cadence 13 and Vox Media who bring those sponsors to you. More thanks for Gold Arthur and Eric Johnson who produced this show. I'm going to thank you guys again. I really like making these podcasts and I like that you like listening to them. See you next week.